Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number four, Deuteronomy chapters two, three, and four. Well, we're going to continue this week in Deuteronomy chapter two. And we're going to begin with the instructions of chapter two, verse 24. For Israel to commence the occupation of the land of Canaan, or put in another way, perhaps, going to fire the first volley in Yehovah's holy war. Let's reread from verse 24 of chapter 2 of Deuteronomy to the end of chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 24, which is right at the end of the page 198, if you have the complete Jewish Bible. Get up, get moving, cross the Arnon Valley here. I have put in your hands Sichon, the Emory, king of Heshbon, his land. Commence the conquest, begin the battle. Today I will start putting the fear and dread of you and all the peoples under heaven, so that the mere mention of your name will make them quake and tremble before you. I sent envoys from the uh, Kedemot desert to King Sichon of Heshbon with a peaceable message. Let me pass through your land. I will keep to the road, turning neither right nor left. You will sell me food to eat for money. Give me water to drink for money. I only want to pass through. Do as the people of Esau, living in Seir, and the Moabites living in Ar, did with me, until I crossed the Jordan into the land Adonai, our God, is giving to us. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, wouldn't let us pass through his territory, because Adonai, your God, hardened his spirit." And made him stubborn so that he could hand him over to you, as is the case today. Adonai said to me, See, I have begun handing over Sihon and his territory before you. Start taking possession of his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all of his people, to fight us at Yahaz. And Adonai, our God, handed him over to us so that we defeated him, his sons, all his people. And at that time, we captured all of his cities, completely destroyed every city, men, women, little ones. We left none of them. As booty for ourselves, we took only the cattle, along with the spoils from the cities we had captured, from Aroer until the edge of the Arnon Valley, and from the city in the valley all the way to Gilead. There was not one city too well fortified for us to capture. Adonai, our God, gave all of them to us. The only land you didn't approach was that of the descendants of Ammon, the region around the Jabok River, the cities and the hills, wherever else Adonai, our God, forbade us to go. The beginning of this war is interesting because it greatly mirrors what happened with Pharaoh in Egypt. The king of Heshbon was offered peace. All he had to do was let Israel march through his land on the way to Canaan. You know, Heshbon was on the east side of the Jordan River, so it was not supposed to be part of the land set aside for Israel. Therefore, by God's general will, there was no need to conquer or attack these people. But King Sihon refused the offer of peace, and so he attacked Israel. The result was the annihilation of the Amorites. And verse 30 explains that the Lord stiffened the will of King Sihon. And this was just as the Lord had done 
with the Pharaoh of the Exodus. The effect of stiffening Sihon's will is that God had marked Sihon for destruction. The die had been cast. The New Testament makes it clear that sometime, usually before death, a person who insists on resisting God's provision for redemption will, at God's own discretion, be permanently left to his wicked state. The Lord will no longer pursue that person. Whether the Lord hardens the heart or simply abandons that person to eternal doom, you know, in the end, it's only a matter of semantics. Because there is no longer hope after that point. Now let me begin this week with yet another of the great biblical principles that comes from these verses. And that principle is that while we can speak of free will, the free will that the Lord has given to men, there are limits and boundaries to that free will. Now, before we go there, let me also point out to you another means that I'd like to, to show you the difference between the true biblical holy war and the jihad of Islam. We discussed that at length last week. And that the judgments of God against Pharaoh and Egypt were actually a type of true holy war. Okay. It was a war initiated by the Lord, not initiated by men in the Lord's name. It was a war that the Lord, that the Lord, uh, it was a war that the Lord fought as a warrior, figuratively speaking at least. And the outcome was determined not by human generals and soldiers, but by the Lord's actions. Now, even though the Lord ordered that the soldiers of Israel, so to speak, were to strip Egypt of all that gold and silver, the vast bulk of that gold and silver, was to be used to create the wilderness tabernacle and all of its necessary ritual instruments. So the law of harem, which is the central tenet of holy war, played a role. Now, review last week's lesson if you can't remember much about the law of harem. By which, in general, the spoils of holy war go to the Lord himself. They were not to be used for material gain for the people. Now, as for our biblical principle concerning the limits of mankind's free will. You know, we like to say that God never interferes with the free will of men. Well, I think that's a little bit simplistic. In fact, we're told on a number of occasions that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And here in Deuteronomy, that the Lord hardened King Sihon's heart. In ancient Hebrew terms, we have to understand the meaning of the term heart is completely unlike the totally different meaning we've assigned it today. The heart in ancient times, including, by the way, New Testament times, 
had nothing to do with being a place where the spirit dwelled or where our will resided. The heart was also not a place where emotion came from. The heart was believed at that time to be the seat of intellect, both conscious and unconscious. Now, just think of the word brain. Okay, The ancients thought of the heart in almost precisely the same way we think today of the brain. The brain is the location of our mind. It's where our instincts live. It's where we make well-thought-out decisions. It's also where our knee-jerk reactions come from. It was only in the later Roman Empire Hellenist time, well after the time of Jesus and of Paul, when they started to transform the conception of the heart into a place of erotic love and emotion. Prior to that time, it was the liver and the kidneys that were referred to as the seats of both positive and negative emotions in almost every society. It was only these later Hellenists who transformed the concept of love from a merciful and beneficent action into an emotion. Now, I'm not giving you this as opinion. This is just well-documented literary and historic fact that unfortunately the church has chosen to ignore for centuries. So if you want to stop being confused about what any part of the Bible is getting at when it's referring to the heart, just substitute the word mind and you'll have it. Okay. Now, as for free will... Free will is the human version of God's sovereignty. Free will is the amount of sovereignty over our own lives that the Lord has turned over to men. God's divine sovereignty, of course, is above all things, and therefore men's free will is always subject and inferior to his. One of the main lessons that can be drawn from, say, Jonah's, Jonah and the whale, Jonah's experience is that the realm of man's free will is not entirely what it seems. There are limits that the Lord has put in place. For instance, it was Jonah's will to do what? Flee from the presence of God. But he found out that God's present everywhere. There is no escape. Denying Yehovah's sovereignty, even his existence, isn't a remedy either, by the way. So atheists, not going to help you a bit. Now, there are conscious and unconscious forces that abound within men that are frustratingly mysterious. Paul writes about these forces in this way. He says, you know, when I want to do right, I do evil. For I delight in the laws of the Lord deep inside my inmost self. But I see in my body parts of another law that's at war with the laws of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my flesh. Paul is speaking at least partly of our free will. 
and how it how it seems so susceptible to the influence of other forces. And indeed, that is what we see when we read of the Lord hardening men's wills against the Lord or against His people for the purpose of exacting the Lord's justice and for exacting the Lord's purposes even using these same men. The Pharaoh of the Exodus was not stupid. After the most complete destruction of Egypt imaginable, and the self-evident invincibility of the God of Hebrews, he still sought to do battle with the Lord, and it resulted in the annihilation of his army, a loss of world-class status for Egypt, and a loss of that same kind of status for himself. King Sihon of Heshbon, here in Deuteronomy, knew full well his army was no match for Israel's. Forget any spiritual element. Israel's military outmanned Sihon's probably a hundred to one. Okay, It was suicide for him to take on Israel, and King Sihon knew it. But in some inscrutable combination of... God delving into the king's unconscious mind combined with the king's own stubborn pride, the king did exactly what God determined he wanted done in the end. The Greeks well recognized this strange phenomenon in men, and they wrote extensively about it in their classic literature. The theme was that somehow... History always seemed to unfold in a way that seems so full of serendipity when it's happening, but in retrospect, there is an obviously predetermined destiny being played out. But predetermined by whom? To what preordained conclusion is history heading? And in the end, history is nothing more than God working in within the lives of men. And that somehow in concert with the working out of men's will, God's will is done. It's an amazing thing. And it's all working towards an end that he set in stone eons ago. So despite the flowery statements and ear-tickling philosophies and religious doctrines men have created about how free will works, our free wills aren't entirely free, nor are they well understood. Let's move on to Deuteronomy chapter 3. We're going to read it all. This is Moses still speaking, and he says, Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us with all his people to fight at Edrei. And Adonai said to me, Don't be afraid of him, because I've handed him all of his people and his territory over to you. You will do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So Adonai, our God, also handed over to us Og, the king of Bashan, with all of his people, and we defeated him until he had no one left. And at that time, we captured all of his cities. There was not one city of theirs we didn't capture. There were 60 cities, all in the region of Argov, the kingdom of Og and Bashan, and all of them fortified cities with high walls, gates, bars in addition to a great number of unwalled towns. We just we completely destroyed them as we did with Sihon, king of Heshbon, annihilating every city, men, women, little ones. We took all the livestock along with the spoils from the cities as booty for ourselves. 
At the time we captured the territory of the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan between the Ornon Valley and Mount Hermon. And Hermon, which the uh, Sidonim call Sirion and the Amorites call Sneer. All the cities of the plain, all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Salcha and Edre'e, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. Og, king of Bashan, was the last survivor of the Rephaim. His bed was made of iron. It's still in Rabbah with the people of Ammon. It was nine cubits long and four cubits wide using the normal cubit. And of this land that we took possession of then, I assigned to the uh, Reubenites and the Gadites the territory extending from the Aroer along the Arnon Valley together with half of the hill country of Gilead, including its, including its cities. The rest of Gilead and all of Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now the whole region of Argov together with all of Bashan form what is called the land of the Rephaim. Jair, the son of Manasseh, took all the region of Argov as far as the border with the uh, Geshuri and the Mahakati. He named this whole area, including Bashan, after himself. It remains Havot Jair to this day. Now I gave Gilead to Mahir, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from the Gilead to the Arnon Valley, with the middle of the valley as the border, as far as the Jabok River, which is the border with the people of Ammon. The Arabah too, the Jordan being its border, from Kinneret to the Sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah to the east. At that time I gave you this order. Adonai your God has given you this land to possess, but all of you who are to fit, who are fit to fight must cross over, armed, ahead of your brothers, the people of Israel, your wives, your little ones, your livestock, I know you have much livestock, will stay in your cities which I have given you until Adonai allows your brothers to rest as he has allowed you. And they too take possession of the land Adonai your God is giving them on the west side of the Jordan. At that point you will return each man to his own possession which I have given you. Also at that time I gave this order to Joshua. Your eyes have seen everything that Adonai your God has done to these two kings. Adonai will do the same to all the kingdoms you encounter when you cross over. Don't be afraid of them, because Adonai your God will fight on your behalf. Then I pleaded with Adonai, O Adonai Elohim, you have begun to reveal your greatness to your servant in your strong hand. For what other God is there in heaven or on earth that can do the works and mighty deeds that you do? Please, let me go across and see the good land on the other side of the Jordan, that wonderful hill country and the, the Lebanon. But Adonai was angry with me on account of you. He didn't listen to me. Adonai said to me, enough from you. Don't say another word to me about this matter. Climb up to the top of Pisgah and look out to the west and the north and the south and the east. Look with your eyes. But you will not go across the Jordan. However, commission Joshua. Encourage him. Strengthen him. For he will lead this people across. Enable them to inherit the land that you will only see. So we stayed in the valley across from Beit Peor.
The first third or so of Deuteronomy 3 is basically a repeat of the Numbers 21 account of the victory over Og and then what happened immediately thereafter. Now let me remind you of the reason for what seems to be simply a repetition of events. At this moment, Moses is speaking to the new generation of Hebrews, the second generation of the Exodus. The older generation, that first generation of the Exodus, all who had been been eyewitnesses to the ten plagues and had celebrated that first Passover and walked through that opening in the Red Sea, they were now dead and gone. And this was a prerequisite for Israel being allowed to enter and possess the promised land. The majority of the generation Moses is addressing in Deuteronomy is getting a history lesson. Because they they had either been born after most of the great events he was speaking about, or they were pretty young children when these things occurred, and they really didn't comprehend the significance of all that happened at the time. Now, this is the reason that while the stories of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers are essentially the same as what were being retold in Deuteronomy, some of the details, the points of emphasis, and the presentation is a little bit different because the circumstances are now a little bit different. You you don't address the people who are in the midst of a current event in the same way you recount those stories to a later generation as past history. And Moses says Israel had marched north, encountered King Og of Bashan and defeated him. And Bashan was um, an area east of the Jordan River. Here's the Jordan. And slightly to the north, on up this direction, of what would be called the Sea of Galilee. Here it's called the Kinneret. So it's on up this way. And this area was very fertile. It contained ideal pasture land. It was well forested. There were 60 towns in Bashan. Probably just a round number. Right? All of which were either walled cities or somewhat fortified towns along with an undisclosed but larger number of smaller unprotected villages. All of them, were told, were seized by Israel. A walled city, of course, indicated the presence of a pretty sizable number of people and a pretty high degree of urbanization because for there to be several of these walled communities meant the existence of a very robust government and good planning. Because this era was not an era of primitive or disorganized people, particularly up in Bashan. They weren't Bedouin-like. The towns of Bashan, we're told, had walls with metal bars and hinges, they had roads, they had standing armies, well-defined laws, a sophisticated government. Beginning in verse 8 then, we get a summary of all the territory on the east side, mind you now, of the Jordan River, seized by Israel, and it begins as far north as Mount Hermon. And that area is still known by that same name to this day, so we know exactly where it is. 
Now notice that Deuteronomy says that Mount Hermon was also called Hermon Sirion, that was in the Sidonian language, and then Sinir in the Amorite's language. I've mentioned on numerous occasions that we have to watch carefully in the Bible because as we thumb through these pages of history, we're going to see the same place called by a number of different names because either the name changes or it's just the same place in a different language. That's all it is. The conquered area referred to in verse 10 as the tableland is referring to the Moabite plateau region right around in here, that eventually became the territory of Reuben. And as a matter of fact, it was also where uh, Ruth, uh, the story of Ruth, all right, where she was from. She was from the same place. Now, recalling our discussion last week about a classification of people called Rephaim, we are told that King Og was actually the last of the remnant of the Rephaim, at least in his region. And the Rephaim were the post-flood version of the Nephilim, right? a race of evil and unusually large men. In fact, verse 11 says that King Og's iron bed, which resides in what is known as present-day Amman, Jordan, by the way, okay, is 13 to 14 feet long and 6 feet wide. Now, of course, a decent bed's always a little bit bigger than the man that uses it, but it indicates just how tall King Og was. And by the way, completely independent Egyptian records from that same era also mentions King Og's enormous bed. All right, And the astounding finding of skeletal remains of men in this region who were about nine feet tall. Now Moses next recalls how he agreed to give much of the area of the kingdom of Sihon to the uh, a, a tribe of Gad. This area right in here, kind of halfway in between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, right in here. Right. And other parts of it to a group of clans who represented about half of the population of the tribe of Manasseh, a little bit north of Gad, because they had determined they didn't want to go in to the land of Canaan. Instead, they preferred the vast pasture lands that used to belong to Sihon because they had enormous herds of goats and sheep as their main economy. Now, by way of further explanation, this same section says that the district known then as the Argob was assigned to Yair, son of Manasseh, and the district known as Gilead was assigned to another son of Manasseh called Machir. So at this time, both Yair and Machir, understand, they weren't specific men at this time. They were just the names of clans who descended from these two men. Yair and Machir were the two dominant clan names of Manasseh. Um, And they decided to cross the Jordan along with the other tribes of Israel. Now this is probably a good time also to mention that the term son, like in Yair, son of Manasseh, 
In Hebrew is Bain. So the Hebrew, in Hebrew, the meaning is that the land was given to Yair Bain Manesha. Yair, son of Manesha. And in this context, son is not always used the way we typically think of it. In the Bible, the term Bain, son, as often as not, refers to a grandchild. Okay? Or it can be as general as any male member of a certain clan. Only occasionally does son, Bane, refer to the direct male offspring, such as Solomon, Bane of David. Solomon, son of David. Now, by way of further description of the land that was conquered by Israel... Verse 17 says that they took the region beginning at the Kinneret and all the way down to the Dead Sea. Now for those of you who have made pilgrimage to Israel, you'll recognize that Kinneret. Okay, it basically means harp. Alright, and it's the, after the shape of the sea, which by the way, today is nothing like what it was back in that era. Back then it was probably at least 50% bigger. Next, Moses reminds the people that the condition for granting Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of half the tribe of Manasseh the rights to these conquered territories of the Transjordan was that they had to send a large contingent of their best troops with the other Israelite tribes to help conquer the Promised Land. Their women, children, livestock could remain behind along with a sizable army for the homeland defense. But these elite troops could not come home until the job of seizing Canaan was completed. Many years later, we find this recorded in the book of Joshua. Joshua 22.1 Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept... All that Moses, the servant of the Lord of God, uh, of the Lord God commanded you, and you have listened to my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore turn now, go home to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of of the Lord gave to you beyond the Jordan. So it was required of them and they carried it through. Now let me point out a principle this sort of hidden in this matter of the two and a half tribes sending troops home with their brethren. In all respects Israel was to act as a group or a congregation. They were to work together for a common cause under the leadership of Yehovah. This God principle is central for all who would think of themselves as God's people. Whether it concerns physical Israelites or those called the church because we have been spiritually joined to Israel. In verse 26... Moses begins an impassioned plea to God to change his mind on a pretty harsh decision that had been made some time earlier. 
Recall that the Lord had judged Moses in a similar manner as he judged that first generation of of the Exodus. They would not be allowed to come into the promised land. Moses had been given a bit of a break by at least being allowed to lead Israel in the conquering of the Transjordan region, and he was also allowed to see the promised land from a distance. Now here Moses once again says, it's because of the people, meaning the general leadership, that he sinned in such a way as to be barred from entering Canaan. And his argument is that Israel provoked him to behave rashly. But this argument fell on deaf ears. The Lord says, enough. I imagine if we looked at today, die! (laughs) Right? Those of you listening on the tape probably don't know what I mean. That's a short for a term that means enough in Hebrew today. Don't speak to me about this anymore, he says. See, the justice of the situation is that just as those who sinned in the wilderness were sentenced to die in the wilderness, it had to be the same for Moses. Moses could not have been given special dispensation for even though he was assigned a high position by God as earthly mediator for Israel. Moses was a flawed man and he sinned as did other men. Not even God's mediator could be saved from the penalty that was declared so long ago. During the time of Adam and Eve, all men would be appointed to experience the grave. Now there are certainly parallels between Moses the mediator and Yeshua the mediator in this regard, but there are also distinct dissimilarities. Yeshua was a man, even though he was also God, And therefore, death for Jesus was as unavoidable as it was for Moses. However, the statement that Moses died on account of the people did not mean that Moses died in place of the people for their good, did it? Moses was not a substitute of atonement, as was Yeshua. Nor did Yeshua die as a result of being a sinful or a flawed man, as did Moses. Moses died because, as all men, he sinned. Jesus died because, unlike any other man, he was sinless. Let's also not bypass the God principle expressed in the relationship between the leader and those who are being led. Because they and we are inextricably bound up together. You know, it's paramount in God's economy that a leader always do what is right in the eyes of the Lord regardless of what other men may want him to do. The consequences for standing firm with the Lord are legendary. The reward for unswerving allegiance to Yehovah is usually martyrdom in one form or another. Hardly ever does one of God's chosen leaders stand in good stead with adoring applause from the world. In fact, if a man is being applauded and admired by the world, it's inevitable that he is less than a God-led person. The motto of one who decides to accept God's offer to be the leader of his flock is, 
Do what is righteous and holy and let the chips fall where they may. Easier said than done. And Moses and all leaders in God's service soon find that out. Nonetheless, as expressed here in Deuteronomy, the Lord's requirements that he puts upon his leaders aren't negotiable. Just as the penalty for sin and rebellion against him is not negotiable. So this chapter ends in a bittersweet fashion with Moses saying, in effect, the reason I can't lead you into the promised land is my personal failures. I'm a sinner and death is my reward. Therefore, says Moses, Joshua is now your appointed leader, appointed by God, and it's he who shall apportion the land of Canaan among the tribes. By the way, Joshua was not given Moses' full authority. Rather, he simply became head of the Israeli military. Joshua did not become a replacement mediator for Moses. Nor was he to be a leader to whom even the high priest was beholden. Israel would not have another mediator in the order of Moses for almost 1,300 years. And that mediator would be none other than God himself in the form of Yeshua of Nazareth. Well, let's start to transition now a little bit to chapter 4. And I want to set the mood and tone of Deuteronomy 4 before we read a little bit of it. Just a couple of verses tonight and then quit. So I want to approach you with a question. If you knew with a certainty that your time on earth was coming to a close in a matter of but days or weeks, what is it that you'd like to say to those you've loved, you've led, you've educated, you've cared for? What would you want to say to them? (laughs) See you later, alligator. (laughs) That was a little bit of Cuban in there, so it's probably hard to hear. What has life taught you that is so valuable that in the limited time you have remaining, you desperately want those who will carry on after your death to know about it? To take it to heart. Hopefully put it to work. See, that's the greater context now of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses is literally pleading with the generation, the second generation now, and Joshua, who's going to succeed him to carry on the good work that the Lord has begun. Don't make the same mistakes, he's saying, that I did, that your parents made. Please. Let's read just the first four opening verses of Deuteronomy 4. Now listen, Israel, to the laws and rulings I am teaching you in order to follow them so that you will live. Then you will go in and take possession of the land that Adonai, the God of your fathers, is giving you. In order to obey the mitzvot, the commands of Adonai, your God, which I am giving you, do not add to what I am saying. Do not subtract from it. You saw with your own eyes what Adonai did at Baal Peor that Adonai destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal Peor. 
But you who stuck with Adonai, your God, are still alive today. Every one of you. Moses starts by extorting, uh, uh, exhorting the people to obey God's laws. And then he goes on to explain why they should obey God's laws. And interestingly, Moses' explanation revolves around a history lesson. That is, Moses says that it is Israel's somewhat recent historical experiences that validates and sets in context the reasons and the purposes for the Lord handling, uh, handing down these rulings and commands for Israel to live by. In other words, the laws of Moses aren't abstract. They're not idealistic and unattainable. They weren't set down in a vacuum. The laws were, of course, given in cultural terms of that era, in a specific language, Hebrew, at a particular time in history. And then the application of these laws were demonstrated in a number of settings and in a number of circumstances. In fact, some of the laws wouldn't even be observed until they entered Canaan because those particular laws revolved around agriculture. Something the Israelites couldn't participate in while they were living in tents out in the wilderness. So in verse 1, Moses says that they should obey all the laws given on Mount Sinai so that you may live. Moses says that life itself, at least for God's people, depends on obedience to the Lord. And obedience was demonstrated by observance of his commandments. Israel, in general, took Moses' advice as literally as he meant it. In Proverbs 19.16, we find King Solomon saying, He who has regard for his life pays regard to the commandments. He who is heedless of his ways will die. The Hebrews firmly believed that walking in the ways of the Lord not only brought shalom, well-being in all of its aspects, but it extended one's life to the maximum human lifespan. Conversely, rebellion would bring calamity and an earlier than normal physical death. Moses is pleading with Israel to be obedient for their own sakes. In historical context, there were several recorded instances during the wilderness journey when rebellion brought death to God's people at God's own hand. In fact, when we consider that since it had only been 38 years since Israel's refusal to enter the promised land and that the age of accountability began at about 20 years old, that means that no one older than 58 or 59 years old, was now even living among the Israelites to begin that conquest. They'd all died out. Rebellion brought instant death to some, lingering death to others, earlier than normal death to the greater portion of the population. See, Hebrews of that era typically lived well into their 70s. I'm saying to you that Moses was not making some super spiritualized statement about only the heavenly value of being obedient to Yehovah. He was reminding the people that their own recent history showed them that obedience to God is life and rebellion is death. 
So choose obedience. Now I'd also like to point out a tiny word or phrase in that first verse of chapter 4. And depending on your translation, it will say hear or hearken or observe. The Hebrew word that's being translated is Shema. Those of you who have been around the Hebrew roots type of teaching for a while ought to recognize that word because it's even become a traditional name for a commandment in Deuteronomy 6. And we're going to look at it closely once we get to it. It's also known as the Hear, O Israel. Here's the point I want to make, and we'll close with this tonight. In our modern English, we make little distinction between the words hear and hearken. We think that hearken is just kind of an old English way of saying hear. Not true. Shema is an instruction to do something. It's a call to action. So in our modern vocabulary, listen and obey or observe better captures the sense of the word Shema or its English counterpart, hearken. In medieval times, hearken specifically meant to act on what you're being told. Just as I have explained in earlier lessons, that when our Bibles say believe in God, we should mentally cross out the word believe and insert the word trust in order to align the biblical sense of it with our 21st century vocabulary. So it is when we run across the words hear or hearken in the Bible, we should mentally cross out those words and replace them with listen and obey or maybe observe. See, that's because just as believe has become a rather weak word that indicates kind of a passive intellectual acceptance of something, so has hear and hearken become words that just mean our ears perceive some sounds and we intellectually comprehend them. That's not at all, nor was it ever, what the sense of the word Shema was. It means we hear and we do. We act upon what we hear. Therefore, let me recite the Shema for you in the sense it was always meant, and the sense in which the Hebrews understood it. And just see if the changing of that one little word from hear to obey, which is the true sense of it, doesn't suddenly put a whole new light on it for us. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Obey, O Israel, The Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. Further, let me remind you of two things. Where the word Lord is in Hebrew, it's actually Yudhe-Vavhe, Yahweh or Yehovah, however you want to pronounce it. And where the word heart is, heart was not thought of in that era as the place where our emotions reside. This wasn't an emotional kind of of deal. The heart was the equivalent of the brain. So in our modern vocabulary, when we read this, we should cross out heart 
whenever we come across it in the Bible and insert the word mind. Now let me read this basic God principle called the Shema for you one more time and we'll be done. And remember, Yeshua says that the Shema is the most foundational God principle of them all. The Ten Words, the Ten Commandments are based on the Shema. And then from that, all the 613 laws. So it's important that we get the truest possible sense of what God's communicating to us. Let me substitute those words and read it again. Obey, O Israel. Yehovah is our God. Yehovah is one. And you shall love Yehovah with all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your might. That puts a little bit different perspective on it, doesn't it? Do you see the strength and the passion of that statement and the doability of it? See, this is a kingly decree that we're not supposed to ignore. The requirement is that we understand who God is intellectually and then let it envelop our souls as well. And then we act upon this with every fiber fiber of our physical and our spiritual being. Hear or hearken are powerful, not passive biblical words. And we will find those same words with the same meaning and intent in the New Testament as well. And we need to take them the same way. Okay, We're going to continue with Moses' eloquent and impassioned sermon next week.